The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit www.gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff, and I'm the host of the podcast, as well as Director of Advancement and Admissions here at the seminary. And with me in the studio today is Dr. Joseph Piper, the president of the seminary and professor of systematics and homiletical theology. He is here for our monthly meeting of Faith and Practice, where we handle, address, and seek to answer questions from our listenership. Dr. Piper, thank you for joining me. It's very good to be with you today. Before we launch into our questions, would you please open us with a I'll word of prayer? i to thank you. Our Heavenly Father, we bless your holy name as we think upon you and all of your beauty and glory and splendor. As you describe yourself to us in so many remarkable symbols, uh, such as the one seated on the throne in Revelation 4, surrounded by the church and all of creation and the angels, you indeed are a great God and there's none like you. Lord, it is our desire to see your kingdom come. We labor for that personally and here at the seminary. We ask that you will bless these labors, that you use the podcast unto that end as well, and that you will accomplish your holy purposes in our lives. We Pray for the podcast that you will uh, give us wisdom and insight today into your word and make this useful for your people. For Christ's sake, amen. Amen. (coughs) Sorry. Dr. Pipa might have a little tickle in his throat, but I have uh, my water bottle here, Banner of Truth water bottle, with my uh, More in the PCA and Presbycast koozie on it, and a Greenville Seminary sticker on it as well. This is the most TR water bottle in the history of water bottles. Okay, our first question. Well, before we launch into our first question, I want to recognize the significance of the day. I might be more excited about it than anyone because I'm a Presbyterian Church history nerd. But today is the 45th anniversary of the first General Assembly of what would become the Presbyterian Church in America. And I say that because the name was a bit different. Dr. Piper, do you have any comments that you would like to make as one of the founding members of the PCA? I think I'll just make it in terms of answering this question that we've received about the founding of the PCA. From Dale Hagwood of Boone, North Carolina. What made the PCA so attractive to you over other great churches in 1973 as a founder? What advice would you give the next generation of PCA ministers as we certainly will have very serious and unique issues to deal with? My understanding is that you are more of a strict subscriptionist than other leaders in the PCA, both historically and currently. So... I'm curious about your thoughts on the wide diverg- differences of opinion over confessional subscription that have existed since 1973. Thank you, Dale, for the question, and it's very opportune that we can talk about this today on the podcast, going back to the First Assembly in 1973. Uh, I'm not really a leader in the PCA, but I had the privilege of being uh, one of the uh, charter members and was at that assembly at uh, Briarwood, their first campus in 1973. But my honest answer is the PCA was not the most attractive church to me uh, in those days. I actually uh, tried to take my church into the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, but there were no um, congregations anywhere near where we were in Mississippi. So actually, um, you could say by default, but God's providence 
that I uh, ended up as one of the charter members of the uh, PCA. Although a number of things that are quite attractive about the PCA um, that even then I realized, but I'm much more cognizant of today than I was then. Uh, one is the polity of the PCA. I think that uh, our polity is by far in the book uh, the most uh, consistent Presbyterian church polity today, particularly as it recognizes the role of ruling elders uh, in all the church courts and in the ordination even of, uh, of ministers. Our historic commitment to evangelism and missions was very attractive uh, to me, as well as carrying on the uh, the heritage of the original uh, Presbyterian Church U.S., uh, where I was ordained. Um, and I think there were so many good things there in that continuity. So I'm thankful in God's providence that he uh, placed me uh, in the PCA, although the very issue that you mentioned was why I was hesitant, and then it's the matter of a confessional subscription, Dale. Um, the the older men, that generation ahead of me, that really put this together, uh, a number of them, for whom I have the greatest love and respect, uh, did not have the privileges that the next generation had. They went to a seminary that was more liberal than conservative. They had one Reformed professor, Dr. Robbie, uh, at Columbia Seminary in the Atlanta area. And so these men were very blessed to come out of seminary, believing the Bible is the Word of God, trusting in Christ alone for salvation, and committed to a Presbyterian polity. And they, in their heart, when they said they were committed to the Westminster Standards, they were. They simply had not had the privilege of living with the standards, studying the standards, and knowing them. And that's what then created the initial tensions uh, was uh, those that had had that privilege of studying, particularly under Dr. Smith and the other founders of Reform Seminary, had a much higher view of the confessional standards and of, an, of experimental Reformed theology. And so there was initial clashes then, so to speak, over the application both of the doc of uh, a subscription to the doctrine, but also the application of the doctrines. How do these doctrines affect us in our missions, in our church life, in our evangelism? Uh, in the sufficiency of Scripture over against uh, uh, other types of, of continuing revelation and, and things like that. So the, the tensions were there from the beginning, but over the years, I think it was healthy discussion for the most part. I think our church became much more reformed. I tell my students, Dale, that uh, when I got out of seminary, there was maybe one or two self-conscious Reformed churches in the South, and that's not an exaggeration. And now we have these large PCA presbyteries throughout the South, and the very fact that we can have these discussions over subscription just shows what God has done in uh, restoring much of the Reformed faith to uh, a Presbyterianism in the United States. So I'm thankful for what God has done in that way. When we had the joining and receiving with the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America in 1983, they, I think as a denomination, had a 
historically looser approach to the standards uh, than the PCA did historically. And that intensified the uh, clash then when they came in without the Orthodox Presbyterians coming in. Uh, I think that that set us on a trajectory of uh, having even more of these battles over how does one adhere to the doctrines of the Westminster Standards. So then the PCA's answer to that uh, question, Dale, was um, what they have termed good faith subscription, which is merely a, a lazy man's way of not believing the doctrines that are in the standards rather than going about the issue. I think the standards are biblically wrong, and we have a way to deal with that through exegesis and argumentation. We simply, and that's why I call it the lazy man's way, we have avoided that. So each man, each presbytery becomes a law unto itself. And each presbytery will determine if this man's exceptions are merely semantic or, yes, they're serious, but they don't cut at the vitals of of the faith, or they do attract the vitals, attack the vitals of the faith. Well, this has created absolute chaos in our assembly. You'll have a man could get into one presbytery, not another. Or one presbytery says this isn't an issue. And of course, we have our favorite um, uh, issues today of the recreation clause and the Sabbath, which is basically misunderstood. Uh, images of Christ, these are the two, and then creation. Uh, these are things now that rock our denomination. Uh, it seems to me then, as as we move forward, that what I long to see and why I'm involved in seminary uh, education is um, we need ministers who first are well grounded in their faith, a real love for God, for the lost, for the Reformed faith. Uh, and then a commitment to exegetical study and preaching, and then a real grasp of the standards. We also need men who are churchmen, and that's why this is uh, one of the three legs of uh, Greenville Seminary, that it's our desire to produce churchmen. And so we need men that also understand the church courts, uh, who can graciously and winsomely uh, speak to issues uh, and argue their case. So um, I haven't given up hope for my denomination. I love it. But there is a lot to be done, and there's a number of younger men that are, I believe, joining in the ranks of uh, trying to accomplish this. So thank you for the question, Dale, and for the timeliness of it. And I think Dale's on a trajectory, if he's not already committed to that now, of uh, being one of those younger men based on his social media posts and his reading list, which I've been impressed to see. So this question comes from Billy Eddy of Hot Springs, Arkansas, and he asks, why does the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in America not have a good representation of ruling elders in attendance, and how can we improve those numbers? Thank you, Billy. And I've spoken to this a bit before in some previous uh, podcast, but it's a very important question. It flows right out of uh, the previous uh, question and answer. As I mentioned, one of the distinctives of the Presbyterian Church in America was its commitment to uh, ruling elders being uh, very involved in the life of the church and in the church courts. Now, there, there are ways this is still happening. We have we alternate every other year ruling elder as a moderator, which I think is quite admirable. And on our committees, we've always had equal representation of ruling elders and teaching elders. 
And we've had ruling elders who uh, actually have been uh, uh, running some of the different agencies and committees of the church at times over the years. That's that's is good. Um, but what's happened is we also, as I've explained in the past, had what we call committee of commissioners. So that one of the good things about the organization of the PCA was how the uh, committees and agencies, we didn't used to even have agencies, answered to the assembly through the delegates that were there. So we had these committee commissioners, again, made up of equal amount of ruling elders and teaching elders that really did review the work of all the committees of the denomination, and they are the ones that came uh, and spoke with recommendations to the assembly. Now, if they didn't want to do something the committee wanted, the committee could come in and argue its case to the assembly. But there was a genuine checks and balances, and it included ruling elders. Now, what's happened is that these um, committee commissioners have basically become rubber stamp uh, committees. And so if you just go back, and I mean, this is easy to demonstrate, and look at the previous assemblies minutes and the recommendations that came from the various committees, they were all inane. Uh, there was no way to be able to have a real accountability because there were no records or emotions that would have demanded accountability. And when people have attempted accountability, they get a spin oftentimes. Uh, so you've got the committee commissioners not functioning properly. Then you have an assembly that ends up doing real business maybe maybe a whole day and a half. But then you pay for a ruling elder $450 uh, to take a week of vacation, if he's not a retired man, uh, to come someplace to a high-rent district in that city where, again, you're going to stay in a hotel after having paid either to fly or drive there and meals and such. Uh, it's A lot of ruling elders simply lost interest not because of the details of the assembly, as some people have suggested, but simply because of the expense, the stewardship, the lack of real accountability. Then you throw into that having to pay, each church would pay 450 for every representative, every delegate that comes, pastors or ruling elders. Well, I think if you look in, the, in our book, our average church size is what, Zach, 100? Something like that, 100 to 125, I think. Okay. A church of 120, 125 members uh, cannot afford $900 uh, to put a man at the assembly and then to pay for his expenses as well. And so we've actually, by meeting at at these places and by doing um, really not a lot of serious work, over a whole week's period, and they've tried to shorten that some. But we have all these seminars and everything and all this PR stuff and this huge convention center with displays and everything. And it's just not uh, it's not wise, nor is it doable uh, for many. So uh, what can we do? Well, there are a number of options. We could... Um, get pressure to start meeting at a major college campus uh, where we could stay very inexpensively and still accommodate 2,000 delegates to the assembly. Um, They tell us we cannot lower the price because they still can't even uh, break even on uh, trying to put on uh, an assembly. And I believe that because 
<clears throat> what a lot of the a lot of the commissioners don't see is what exhibitors see, and that is how much they've monetized every single little thing at the assembly yeah. in a bid to just make ends meet. Right. So um, current trajectory, we're not going to be able to lower the price of the assembly meeting at convention centers in major cities. The only way we could lower the price of the assembly and have it as large as it is would be to go to major universities that are glad to have groups uh, come on there and help pay their rent some for uh, the summer. Now, I am increasingly convinced that we need to go to a delegated assembly, which means that each presbytery would send the equal amount uh, according to the size of the presbytery, or you could do it just like our Senate and have every presbytery have the same amount. There's lots of ways to do it, but equal amount of ruling those and teaching those on a rotating basis so that nobody can uh, be pushed out of going, do it alphabetically or what, have alternates then to sign up. If somebody can't go, then, you know, I'm glad to go. Um, people say, but that's not grassroots. But in fact, we're not grassroots now. This will be much more a, an assembly that, that really did reflect the complexity uh, and breadth of our denomination. But we cannot continue going on with one-fourth of the people in attendance, not only one-fourth of the people in attendance being ruling elders. That is a prescription for a church to go liberal. And we see this then when some of these really more progressive-type amendments get down to presbyteries, and they're overwhelmingly overturned because you get the ruling elders involved in the conversation. Uh, if things continue as they are, then what we want to see happen is that some of the wealthier uh, confessional churches uh, set up a fund uh, to at least help another church get a ruling elder there. I know uh, our church here, Woodruff Road, does that. And that's something that some of these big uh, churches could do. Uh, another suggestion I've had in the past was start a uh, – people banks used to have a Christmas uh, savings account, start a General Assembly savings account and put a little bit in there each month uh, toward uh, uh, getting to the assembly. Uh, so we've got to ad address the current problem to get men there, and then we've got to address it more long term as well. Thank you for the question. It's it's always an important issue to address, and there have been some formal um, procedures and recommendations made in presbyteries toward that end. We'll see if any of them actually come to fruition, either at the assembly level or at the presbytery level. I'm very encouraged by a couple of grassroots organizations, more in the PCA, is, uh, is one of them. Gospel Reformation Network is another one. So we commend those efforts and encourage our listeners to, to look into those organizations as well. Our next question comes from Jim Baird of Fall Branch, Tennessee. And he asks, comparing the original version of the Westminster Confession of Faith with the 1788 version, the changes to chapters 20, 23, and 31 indicate a significant shift in thinking about church-state relations. There seems to have been a shift away from the belief that the state should incorporate penal sanctions against the first four commandments and that the church's affairs should be protected from state interference. But I've been unable to find any documentation on the reasoning behind the changes or presbytery meeting minutes that document the discussion and debates. Are you aware of books or other documentation that provide the reasoning behind the 1788 version changes? Or perhaps you can provide that information from your own background and learning. 
Thank you, Jim. Uh, the book I'd recommend would be edited by David Hall. Um, it has nothing to do – the changes in the colonies had nothing to do with uh, any commitment to or not to uh, applying the first, first four commandments to criminal code. It all had to do with what's called Erastianism, which uh, is the belief that the state should have a role – in the government of the church. The great majority, I think, of the members of parliament, of the long parliament that called for the assembly, would have had Erastian convictions. They thought that the state should be more involved. Now, most of the divines at the Westminster Assembly did not um, share that, but everything they, the assembly was Erastian. It was called by the state. Uh, everything that uh, they did had to be approved then uh, by, uh, by the assembly. So, and that was a fairly common thing throughout Europe in the Reformed churches. But it also brought uh, a great deal of oppression to the Reformed and Presbyterians. So when the Reformed came over to the colonies, well aware of the oppressive nature of the church involvement, of the state's involvement, as well as uh, longing for the uh, church to have a complete independence from the state, thinking it was not biblical. Um, when the uh, initial when the confession was initially adopted, I think it was 1722, in the Adopting Act, they s uh, singled out uh, these sections. And so then the Synod in 88, uh, change that. Now, as best I can see, Jen, there's no change in Chapter 20. Uh, but the changes in 23 simply have to do with the role of the state in the life of the church and in Chapter 31 that the civil magistrate may not call uh, assemblies. And so th those were the changes. They really have nothing to do. You'd had people on both sides of the issue in terms of... Um, sanctions with respect to the first four commandments would all have agreed that the state should not be involved in the life of the church. Thank you for the question, Jim. Just to reiterate the book recommendation here, it's The Practice of Confessional Subscription, which is a book of, of, of essays edited by David Hall. There's one that's called The uh, Context for the Adopting Act. Not quite sympathetic, maybe, but uh, you at least get the history there. And you got a good discussion of uh, subscription by George Knight in the book as well. Uh, those would be a couple of uh, places um, that you would find to be helpful. Dr. Smith has his piece in here, A Case for Full uh, Subscription. And then David Hall, that's what I'm really thinking about, re-examining the re-examiners of the Adopting Act. So he's interacting with some of the modern interpretation of the Adopting Act, and I think quite well proves that they're wrong. Uh, another beneficial book is a book by uh, Ian Murray. It doesn't, I mean, Ian Hamilton doesn't address the American situation, but does address the issue of subscription, because like, it's the erosion of Calvinist orthodoxy, and it's a small book published by I think Mentor, or Christian Focus, and that is a, a, a history by Dr. Hamilton on uh, the Church of Scotland. 
All right. Very good. Thank you, Jim, for the thought-provoking question. And our next question comes from Chad Warner of Simpsonville, South Carolina, a frequent um, friend of the podcast. He asks, how can we show Roman Catholics that the Apocrypha is not canonical? Thanks, Chad. Um, Define some terms. The Apocrypha refers to, actually the book means hidden or secret, books that uh, were written between the Old and New Testaments uh, primarily. There were some, I guess, after the uh, New Testament as well, but primarily the books between the Old and New Testaments that the Roman Catholic Church have claimed to be a part of the authoritative canon, which means the books of Scripture. So whereas we believe there are 66 books that are canonical, they would add these apocryphal books as well. The uh, arguments uh, against it uh, being included, um, one is we have the canon in place affirmed by our Savior and the apostles, and they always use the technical names of the law, the law and the prophets, or the law and the writings and the prophets, and that referred to what we would call the uh, 39 books of the Old Testament. And so we have a very good infallible, authoritative statement on what the canon was. So all these books would have been finished and written when Christ and the apostles were living. So that's the primary reason. Now, the other is uh, the whole matter of uh, uh, the self-authenticating nature of Scripture. Uh, And when you read in the Confession of Faith uh, the various testimonies for why we would regard Scripture, it's it's, uh, internal Uh, its message, paragraph 5 of of the first chapter of the paragraph, we may be induced by the testimony of the church. Now, that's not the church making these books canonical, but the church testifying, which it did through the centuries. It's only the Roman church that would later have added these books. And then it says, the heaviness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies and entire perfection thereof, are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Well, these things are, are lacking in the apocryphal books. There's inconsistencies, there's inaccuracies. Uh, and there are things in them that don't agree with the rest of Scripture. But then the final argument is the uh, divine subjective evidence of the Holy Spirit, yet notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority, there is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the Word in our hearts. And so as one reads the Word, take all those things into account uh, that it listed before. It's the Spirit that will impress upon one that uh, these books are infinitely different from the apocryphal books. Little historical trivia here. I just finished up ancient church history with Dr. Wilborn, and uh, one of the one of the observations we made of Jerome, the the great translator of the of the Old Testament and, and New Testament out of Hebrew and Greek into Latin to produce the Vulgate. Was he? He was against including the apocrypha in the canon. Now Augustine was pro apocrypha, 
um, or at least some of the books. And uh, at one point, I don't know how this worked out, what the conversation was like, but uh, Jerome was forced to translate a couple of the books into Latin. And I can just imagine him you know, whittling away at the translation work, grading and grinding his teeth, thinking, oh, why and am I, I having I think to with Augustine, in, in the City of God, I still think he gave a greater uh, divine authority to our canonical books, not to the apocryphal books. Sure, yeah. Um, thank you for the question, Chad. Very helpful. Our next question comes from Jared Lowe. This is a follow-up question to our previous episode of Faith and Practice at this point from a couple of months ago, and he write, he wrote in this, I guess my question would mainly be for a bit of clarification as to the statement of adultery being a worse sin than homosexuality. I'm going to definitely go back and listen to that section again to make sure I didn't miss anything, but if Dr. Piper is definitely saying that adultery is worse than homosexuality, I guess my follow-up question would be, is that always the case, or would the circumstances surrounding such sin affect its heinousness? I thought I understood him to say that adultery is a worse sin than homosexuality due to the fact that the commandment specifically mentions adultery, and therefore the sin that is explicitly mentioned would be the greatest sin in the general sense. Uh, yes, uh, Jared, and that's, that's what I said. Uh, I think that you've got in the ten words the genus-species approach to God's moral law. <clears throat> and adultery, which is the violation not just sexually but of the sacred marriage covenant, has a greater complexity of sin. Now, homosexuality is a perversion that is a consequence of the practice of sin. And, for example, I think today from some of the surveys, research, I've seen that there's actually a greater openness now to homosexuality because of the addiction to pornography. So all these things are interrelated. The worst sin would be that if a man divorced his wife because of homosexuality, then you would have the two sins compounded. So it's an, I, I meant in no way, and I'm sorry if I communicated that as far as I'm concerned, in the Old Covenant, homosexuality uh, deserved a death penalty. That was true in, I think, all of our states uh, in the early days of our country. So the, uh, the stubborn, impenitent practice of homosexuality, I don't have any problem with that. I don't think the state's required to do that, but it is heinous. But, of course, adultery was also punishable by death if it was persisted in and the person was was impenitent. So it's not to say that in terms of perversion, I mean, in terms of perversion, homosexuality is worse, uh, as Paul, I think, spells out in Romans chapter 1. But in terms of the whole moral compass of all that's involved in marriage, then that's why I think adultery would be more serious. Now, when you say that in terms of a perversion, homosexuality is worse, you're speaking mainly to the fact that it's a global corruption of a man's sexuality, the disordering of desires, as well as a, 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 an immoral application of said desires, as opposed to... Well, yeah, I mean, to, Paul says that. He says the desires themselves are a consequence of God giving people over to... Yeah, that's exactly how I, what I understood you to say. Thank you for the question, Jared. I hope that clarifies things, and I'm Sure that careful listeners will want to send in additional follow-up questions to some of the comments made in response to Jared's question. Our next question comes from Virginia Canuto of Recife, Brazil, and she asks this regarding Exodus 3. In, um, in Exodus 3.11, Moses questions God, Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh, and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? 
after God calls him to come and ordered him to go to Pharaoh and lead his people out of Egypt. In verse 12, God answered Moses, Certainly I will be with thee, and this shall be a token unto thee that I have sent thee. When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God upon this mountain. Some authors defend that this token could be the burning bush. In your view, what did God promise to Moses, and what token did God give to him as a testimony that he was sent by God unto Pharaoh? Thank you, Virginia. And just a shout out to Brazil. I'm just so excited about uh, the stands that your new president is starting to take already, and his foreign minister was at the G20 and um, really was quite bold, saying that worldwide socialism is anti-faith, anti-patriotism. And so we're praying for you all. It's a remarkable turn of events in God's mercy and pray that he'll continue to show mercy to the wonderful country of Brazil that's like an adopted homeland for me. Uh, You know, I think that the uh, token is simply, this is a, a, the word sign is used in different ways. And I just think that it's going to be a sign of fulfillment, that they're going to come to Mount Sinai. And when they come there to Mount Sinai, to Mount Horeb, that'll be the confirmation um, that this indeed was God's work accomplishing, um, making them his, his people. So I don't think the token was the burning bush. Uh, I think the token uh, was what God was going to accomplish. Let my people go. They might come here and worship me. Our next question comes from Patrick Brink of 29 Palms, California. In what main way or ways does Aquinas' doctrine of God, that is, being and simplicity, differ from a classical Reformed perspective? Patrick, the question is very timely. We just uh, had a defense of a a THM thesis uh, by a very fine young scholar, Scott Cook, who argues that basically classical uh, theism uh, is the same in... um, Augustine, Lombard, Aquinas, and the Reformers. And so uh, at this particular point, simplicity simply means, as our confession says, that God is without body or parts and no passions, and that he is uh, himself um, a simple being, which would mean uh, that there's no division within him. So he is his attributes, but all the attributes are part of, of each other. Uh, I think Turton says that virtually we will use these, the Bible uses these different descriptions to help us understand the complexity of God because we just cannot grasp uh, this singular being who is in a unity all of, of these uh, things. And that he, um, uh, he does not have emotions like us. Now, there's something in God's will uh, that is akin to our emotions because we're made in his image. So when he uses words like uh, anger, love, tenderness, we identify that from our own experience. But it's a very higher thing in the being of God. Um, It's more wonderful is all I can say. Uh, But it's not – emotions are always reactive and they're always connected with bodily passions then as well. Uh, God is – pure act. God is, as Aquinas would say, God um, exercises his will. And so 
when he determines to place his favor upon a person, that's love. But it's much deeper than simply, I'm going to pick this rock over that rock or something like that. So it, it's, it's, he's incomprehensible. But as best, at least from uh, Mr. Cook's presentation, at this particular area, there really doesn't seem to be any main difference. Aquinas gets a lot of bad press because he did some really foolish things. He bringing Aristotelianism into his development of of faith and reason and such as that, his sacramentalism. Um, but he was uh, he was Augustinian in his his approach to uh, election, um, and he was a good exegete. Now, I've not read the commentaries, but I've read those that have read the commentaries, and he actually was uh, quite a good exegete. And so some of the principles of mit- late medieval scholasticism factor into what we would refer to as uh, orthodox scholasticism. So in Miller's book or whatever, where he really spells those things out and helps us understand, it's a methodology, and it's a very important methodology. Thank you for the question. Our next one comes from Logan Stewart of London, Ontario, in Canada. I've been thinking about republication quite a bit. Who hasn't? Uh, the authors of the law is not a Nobody faith. Nobody didn't say that. <laughs> no, he didn't. That uh, was my, my little two-bit humor. The authors of the law is not of faith argue that the Mosaic law is in some sense republished as the covenant of works uh, or a republishing republication of the covenant of works. Given the language in Westminster Confession of Faith 19.1 and 19.2, are we committed to saying that the Mosaic Law at least materially republished the law of the Covenant of Works, even if it didn't formally republish it? The proponents of republication say that it's, it is a republication of the, Mosaic, of, of the uh, Covenant of Works, the means by which the children of Israel were going to receive the land in order to establish the principle of merit. And so that as a covenant, it was not a covenant of grace, it was a covenant of works, but people were only saved by grace, and that's also clearly there. Historically, a number of ways of looking at the uh, Mosaic Covenant, but with respect to your question, the the two primary approaches would be that of Turretin and many of the uh, Puritans and the Reformed Scholastics, and that is there is a restatement within the Mosaic economy of the covenant of works. And that restatement is in there uh, in order to accomplish what we have referred to in other podcasts is the uh, first use of the law. Because God's standard doesn't change. If a person is going to have eternal life, they've got to obey God perfectly. So God has instituted that promise there from uh, the um, covenant of works that, yes, you obey perfectly and you will be saved. Never with the intention anybody, any mere man could do that, but as a standard. Now, I add to that 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 restatement of that principle from the covenant of works in the Mosaic Covenant is the means in the covenant by which our Savior fulfilled both the positive demands and the sanctions of the covenant of works. So he did obey the law of God perfectly and thus had life for himself and his people, and he did fully pay the penalty of the curse. And and so Paul relates the curse to Christ in Galatians chapter 3. So I think that it's there for that reason. 
but it's not there as it doesn't make the Mosaic Covenant a covenant of works, and it doesn't um, mean this is the way the people receive the land by faith, coupled with hearing. Isn't that what the writer of the Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 4? They didn't receive it because they didn't couple faith with hearing. Now, the other approach, though, to it is, um, say, Professor Murray, Dr. Robertson, is that, no, those statements are not restatements of the covenant of works, but merely of Christian living. Now, I think both things would be true. I think that, yes, a Christian um, do this and live. Full covenant life is seeking obedience to God. And so I don't even see an antithesis between the two, but I, I think there is a restatement there. But it's for the purposes of the first use of the law and for Christ to accomplish our salvation. Those are helpful clarifying remarks. Dr. Piper, thank you very much for clearing the air in what has uh, become a very difficult issue. Our next question comes from uh, C.A. Riss of St. Louis, Missouri. He's a student at Covenant Seminary, and he asks, Would you please provide a simple comparison or contrast of Baptist and Presbyterian covenant theology? And I guess when he says Baptist covenant theology, he's speaking specifically of the 1689 brand. I don't know how to provide a simple contrast. Maybe you can. As I understand it, we're going to take this as, as covenantal Calvinistic Baptist. Uh, that would have, uh, like my good friend, Pastor Al Martin, a covenant theology. They see the covenant as the means by which the Bible unfolds God's revelation. Uh, But when they come to uh, Jeremiah chapter 31, they say this is where the change occurs, that the new covenant, that God is going to write his law on the heart of everyone who is embraced in the new covenant. And so they would say that, yes, children receive circumcision, uh, and children are part of covenant succession, but they should not receive the sign until they have that reality of regeneration. Whereas a typical Baptist would simply say that uh, there's no covenant in Scripture. Many of them would be dispensational. Uh, So I think that's the the primary difference, Uh, whereas Covenant theology sees the continuity of the covenant and understands that what we have in Jeremiah 31 is the spiritualizing of the covenant promises. The New Testament interprets all of those for us, uh, but never in a context that every person um, who is in the administration of the covenant of grace is uh, going to have the reality of a new heart. And this was true again in all the covenants. So we, we have to distinguish between the covenant which I prefer to say was made with Christ and his elect in him, an administration of the covenant. So from Genesis 3.15 through now until the end of the age, the covenant is administered in the visible church. And one comes into that covenant in the new covenant as they did in the old, either by a profession of faith, as did Abraham, or many of these Gentiles that we find as part of uh, Jewish people, are their children. Well, that hasn't changed because God never changed that. So just as in the old covenant, there were people in the covenant administration who were not uh, converted. In the new covenant, there are people in the covenant administration who are not converted. Demas, um, Simon the magician, were men that have come in by um, profession of faith, uh, but they didn't have the reality. And there will be children that are included because they're in the covenant administration. 
but it's only when they receive the reality are they in the covenant of grace. Thank you for the question, and thank you for the answer, Dr. Piper. Our next question is what's going to make this podcast worth listening to. It's <laughs> a question from Christian Rogers of La Puente, California, and he asks, The communicatio idiomatum says that whatever is true of the natures is true of the person, and that the properties of the natures are to be attributed to the person. As such, if it is true that the human nature of Christ is created, then is it proper to refer to the person of Jesus Christ? As created. The um, chapter 8 in the Confession, when it talks about the communication of the uh, attributes, paragraph 7 Christ in the work of mediation acts according to both natures, by each nature doing that which is proper to itself, yet by reason of the unity of the person, that which is proper to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other nature. And that's a distinction your question doesn't really take into account. It's never the person always as the God-man. It's the person denominated by one nature has attributes attributed to him. Classic example is Paul in Acts 20, verse 28, the church was purchased with the blood of God. Well, God doesn't have blood. But because of the unity of the two natures, then whatever the person did would be infinite and eternal and would have all the efficacy of the divine nature. But God didn't die. So nor was um, the uh, divine nature created. So it would be wrong to refer to the person as created because the Bible never tries to apply the attributes uh, in those ways. It's always quite distinguished. For example, Galatians 4, God, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son... There is his eternal preexistence. To be born of a woman, there is his humanly uh, beginning. And so this, this is the way the Scripture deals with it. So I would be very opposed to saying that the person of Jesus Christ was created. But we can certainly say that Mary was the mother of God. Yes. For all the reasons you listed. That was another issue we tackled in ancient church history is that the Nestorian debates... So a good follow-up question to Christian's uh, question is from Jeff Fernberg of Rochester, New York. Jesus is God, so when Jesus died, did God die? And we kind of addressed this I think I just addressed that uh, for you, Jeff. Um, uh, Jesus is the God-man. And so on the cross, the person suffered the wrath of God, and that in itself is uh, an incomprehensible mystery. You read of Luther meditating for three hours and finally saying, God, separated from God, how can it be? We don't know. But we do know is that uh, in his human nature he died. And so, no, there's no way that God, um, the nature of God died as Jesus died on the cross and was buried. Very good. Thank you, Jeff, for that that question. It was timely um, in consideration of Christian's question as well. Our next one comes from Caleb Peterson of Denver, Colorado. He asks, how is the modern-day lordship salvation debate similar and different to the Marrow controversy? We're going to have to define some terms here. What should we affirm and deny regarding the modern lordship salvation debate? Well, Caleb, the, uh, the Marrow controversy really had to do with how a person is right with Christ. And uh, there was evidently a group called Neonomians that would have put law-keeping 
not into the responsibility of the Christian life and covenant keeping, but into acceptance with God. Now, that's really a shortened version of what's, uh, what's going on. But um, So that uh, men on either side of that controversy would have agreed that uh, you don't just have Christ as Savior from sin. You're taking Christ as Lord. So uh, the modern lordship uh, salvation debate really has to do, can we divide the person of Christ in his offices? And no, he's Christ. He's the prophet, priest, and king. So when you take hold of Christ, you're receiving him in the fullness of his offices, and so you're taking him as your savior to be your prophet, priest, and king. So as prophet, he shall lead and teach you through Scripture. As your priest, yes, he makes you and your prayers and your works acceptable to God. But as king, he's going to govern you through uh, his holy law by his spirit. And so uh, if that's how one understands lordship salvation, then I think, yes, that uh, uh, the Bible says, pursue sanctification without which no man shall see the Lord. The confession and catechisms use salvation not in terms of our justification and conversion, but in terms of our sanctification, perseverance, and glorification. And so uh, we must be growing in grace to go to heaven, because if we have been converted, both the Spirit is in us as well as what the Bible calls the seed of righteousness, which is the new heart. So we're going to be changed. If you have follow-up questions on that particular issue, please send them in. I think this would be a a helpful conversation for us to continue on future podcasts. And our next question comes from Carrie Gephard of South Holland, Illinois. And Carrie, if I mispronounced your your surname, I apologize for that. Does baptism save? Yes, baptism saves, Carrie, because the Bible says it does. (laughs) Let's read. Uh, In 1 Peter chapter 3... Uh, Paul has been talking about uh, how God, uh, through his patience, kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. So that's the 120 years that he bore with men, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. And so what he's saying here is is that uh, baptism is the antitype and that the, the ark going through the water uh, was a type of conversion. Now, the confession reminds us that because of the close relationship of the sign and the reality, that the one is often spoken of as the other. And we have to keep that in mind when we read passages like this. But what he says, baptism now saves you, he qualifies that by not the removal of dirt... And I prefer the word defilement of flesh. So the baptism does not remove any corruption of the sinful nature, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So baptism testifies to us that we're in union with Christ, that we've been raised with Christ, that the power that raised Christ from the dead is a power at work in us, and thus we, through our baptism, have this appeal to God for a good conscience, for certainty that we are in Christ. So uh, it's in that way that baptism saves. It brings us 
uh, to assurance of salvation, but it does not remove the corruption of the flesh. We have a good follow-up question here on baptism from Billy Eddy of Hot Springs, and though I have other folks that we could put ahead of Billy's second question here, I think it's appropriate in the context. The Westminster Confession of Faith says this about the mode of baptism. Dipping of the person into the water is not necessary, but baptism is rightly administered by pouring or sprinkling water upon the person. So does this permit a Presbyterian church to practice immersion as the normative mode of baptism at their church? And if not, what should be done at the Presbytery level? I, I don't know of this taking place, but maybe maybe you do. It's a very, very important question. I just dealt with this in Introductory Reform uh, Theology, Billy. Uh, that is a concession statement <clears throat> that I wish all of our Baptist brothers would say as well. All that they're saying there is, even if a person is immersed it is still a proper baptism. That's all it says. There's no warrant in those words uh, for using that mode because it says then that um, rightly administered by pouring or sprinkling upon the person. So the response of a session is, if you come to our church and you were baptized by immersion, we're not going to require you to be rebaptized. We don't think it's the biblical mode, but water did go in your head, and so that's what's important. And so we accept your baptism. Now, I wish the Baptist would do that, but a Baptist will not do that. So if you've been baptized by pouring or sprinkling and you want to join most Baptist churches, even the Calvinistic ones, you're going to have to be rebaptized. So all the confession is saying, we'll accept your baptism, but it's not what we think of as the proper mode. So then, no, a, a Presbyterian church uh, should not uh, be practicing immersion. And uh, if a member of a congregation in which that is occurring, the proper procedure is is to file a complaint first with the session, where you spell out from um, the Scriptures, the Book of Order, the Confession of Faith, uh, that uh, immersion is not something that we're to be practicing, and you ask the session to reconsider this. They have to answer you within 30 days. There's nothing systematic about this. This is in our book to protect the rights of all. If they answer you in the negative, then this is how Presbytery gets involved. You then take that complaint uh, to Presbytery, uh, and Lord willing, any Presbytery would say no. Now, there are there is a, a matter of conscience here. So let's say you have a person who comes to your church, and they want to be baptized by immersion. And so we explain all the reasons to them. And they still want to, and there's no superstition uh, connected with that in their minds. Uh, that's where each session is going to have to deal with it. They're going to deal with it differently. I'm not inclined to uh, to do that. But there'll be other sessions on that one particular issue. It's been careful examination. Um, what I would probably do is make arrangements with a Calvinistic Baptist church and ask them, uh, would you baptize this person for us? We'll accept the baptism, but we don't want to do it in that way. But each session, but that's not the church policy that we immerse. It is allowing uh, a church may allow an exception uh, if there's a clear understanding of baptism and there's no superstition involved in it. You know, the only Presbyterian church that I know of that practiced baptism by immersion to the exclusion of other forms of baptism, generally speaking, was uh, the church I grew up in. And I was dunked in the Ridley Creek State Park 
river and uh when i made profession of faith as a teenager i was not baptized as an infant so that that's really the only church i know well, that we'll was accept the, your baptism y- you do and i have the certificate and i've given it to our session so I think that brings us up on our time. A lot of great questions this episode. We have some left over for next month, uh, but we'll, we'll need to collect some more. So if you have any follow-ups, please send them in. And if you have any fresh questions, again, please send them in. Thank you, Dr. Piper, for joining me. And to all of you, thank you for listening. We will, uh, we will seek to be back on air next month, Lord willing, and I will be sending out uh, notices of the date and time as we determine them together. Until next time, God bless you, and thank you for tuning in to Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. You've been listening to a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, please visit www.gpts.edu.